Let's open our Bibles again to Psalm 25. We've been spending this summer in a number of the Psalms, and I hope that that has been a blessing and help to you. Uh, I love the Psalms. They are songs, they are prayers, they are ways for us to connect with the Lord, no matter what we are going through, and um, I find it just supremely helpful to spend concentrated time in them. And then, Lord willing, after the Labor Day holiday, we'll dive into uh, the New Testament letter of Colossians and um, see what it means that Christ is preeminent and that we are to be rooted and grounded in him so that we will become fruitful uh, for his glory. Psalm 25, follow with me as I read. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. For they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should go, that the way he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me, be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. We've been seeing how this is a conversation that David is having with the Lord as he is in the midst of some kind of unnamed affliction and he is facing shame and he is facing treachery and in today's verses we're going to look at the the fact that he's facing also internal conviction over uh, just his own need for God's constant grace and mercy and forgiveness And isn't that often the way it is that when we are taken through times of affliction, the Lord makes us aware of things in our heart and in our lives that perhaps we weren't paying attention to before, or maybe we didn't even see. 
and the Lord opens our eyes. And it's all part of what, what the New Testament refers to as the refiner's fire. Job spoke of it as well in, in the Old Testament. But Peter speaks of this benefit of affliction. That is that God heats up the furnace of affliction in our lives. And, and as a result, as the gold of our faith is being refined, there's all kinds of scum that rises to the top. Attitudes, actions, behaviors. Uh, sins and and we are to then skim those off, so to speak, through repentance and confession and faith, and that's really kind of what's happening here in verses six and seven, in how David is relying upon the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, the mercy and the grace of God. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, imagine for a moment that you are the richest person in the world. And you happen to notice an utterly destitute and convicted criminal. Would you trade places with him? Would you give up your immeasurable glory and riches for his extreme poverty and corruption? If you or anyone else were to do that, you would... Consider it the greatest trade that we've ever seen. Yet as great as that trade might be, as great as that exchange might be, there is one that is infinitely greater, and that is this, that Jesus' exchange of his righteousness for our sin exceeds all other imaginative exchanges. And this and this alone is the basis for a repentant sinner's righteous standing before God. That Jesus, immeasurable glory and riches, has exchanged places with criminals, sinners, utterly destitute people, that he might give us his righteousness. That's the greatest exchange that the world has ever seen or ever will see. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What does that mean? It means that when we trust in Jesus as our sin-bearing Savior, God then looks at us through the lens of our Savior's sinless character and his sufficient work as our Redeemer, as the sacrifice who gave himself to pay for our sin. And as a result then, we are declared righteous through faith. God declares us righteous when he sees that we trust in Jesus as this one who in immeasurable glory exchanges that glory for our sinfulness. Wow. (laughs) Isn't that not just the most amazing thing ever? And this action then forever changes our spiritual status before God. We go from being guilty, criminal, sinner to righteous, adopted child of God. Not because of anything that we have done or could do, but solely 
because of what Jesus Christ has done. So in that verse in 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul is saying that for it's for our sake that, that God the Father made God the Son who knew no sin to be that sin offering so that we could become the righteousness of God, that we could receive the righteousness of God. This is the gospel. And this is why the gospel is so offensive to, to some unbelievers because they want their salvation to depend upon their righteousness. What they can do, what they have done, what they are planning to do for God. But salvation is based solely upon the work of Jesus Christ. And because Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for our criminal status as sinners. God's mercy is free and open to flow to us. This is the wondrous exchange. And so as we use the New Testament to interpret the old, which is what good Bible students do, we use the fulfillment of the New Testament to interpret the old. We come into these verses in Psalm 25 with that understanding that the mercy of God flows to us from the wellspring of the completed work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. If like the hymn writer, we think of streams of mercy never ceasing, which call for our loudest praise, then the streams must find their source somewhere. Streams just don't appear out of nowhere. Streams have a source. And the streams of mercy that flow to us have a source, and that source is the work of Jesus Christ. The finished work of Christ on our behalf. And from that wellspring flows this water, pure water of mercy. We live on two acres in Geauga County and we have a well in our yard. So great thing about that is we don't have to pay a water bill. So the water just comes up out of the ground. Our neighbor uh, to the south has a spring bubbling up in his yard. And we believe, as our previous owners believed, that our well is tapped into that spring. Because people come and drink our well water and they say, this doesn't taste like well water. It's tapped into the spring. And so we as believers in Jesus Christ are tapped into the wellspring of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And out of that well flow streams of mercy. On the cross, Jesus satisfied the righteous demands of God's holy law. Jesus was condemned in our place. He absorbed the wrath of the holy God and now God is free to let his mercy abundantly flow to us. 
as a result of that, when we sin, we need to remember the work of Jesus Christ for us. It's that kind of gospel understanding that is crucial for us when we come to Old Testament passages like this that speak of the mercy of God. Now notice in verses 6 and 7, David uses the word remember three times. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. Remember not the sins of my youth, and remember me for the sake of your goodness. Three times David asks God to remember. Well, what in the world does that mean? Does David think that God forgets the way you and I forget? No, that's not possible. God is infinite in knowledge and comprehensive in all that he knows. So what does the Bible mean by God remembers? Well, this is what it means. It means he is always actively working. He is doing exactly as he promised. That's what the Bible means when it says God remembers. Let me give you a number of examples. Genesis 8.1. After the rains of the great flood of Noah's day had stopped, it says, God remembered Noah and all the animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. Now, did Moses mean that, that God had for a time forgotten about Noah? Or forgotten about his family? No, of course it doesn't mean that. It means that God is intentively now focusing in on Noah and his family and actively remembering his promise and his grace and his mercy. Another example, Genesis 30, verse 22. uh, When God remembered Rachel and, and was listening to her cries as she struggled with infertility, It says that God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. It doesn't mean that God had forgotten about Rachel. It means that God was now actively turning his attention in order to act on behalf of Rachel. Or Exodus 2, 24, when the Hebrew slaves cried out to the Lord in Egypt... It says, God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenants. He actively went to work based upon his promises. That's what that means. He had already made a covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and now he was actively acting upon that promise. Or Psalm 98, verse 3. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel. So when the Bible says that God remembers someone, it does not mean that there was a possibility that he forgot about them. God's knowledge is infinite and perfect. It is completely comprehensive. In fact, while he was rebuking 
his own people through the prophet Isaiah, God says this, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind you transgressors. Remember the former things of old for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. God's knowledge is infinite, it is perfect. And it's all wrapped up with the mystery of his divine will, which he will carry out in his own way and in his own time. And so David says, remember your mercy, Lord. He's convicted about his sin and he wants God to actively work in his heart according to his needs. God remembers means that he is doing exactly according to his character and promises he is actively working on your behalf and for his glory. That brings us to our big idea this morning. This is what I want you to walk away with this morning. God remembers you. God remembers you. He, that, what that means is he is always actively working for your good and according to his promises. Even when you don't realize it, even when you are not conscious of it, even when perhaps you feel forgotten by God. When you're tempted to think that God has forgotten you, you need to remember this truth. God remembers you. He is always actively working for your good and according to his promises. There are times we feel forgotten. This is part of the struggle that we have as human beings. Even the writer of Psalm 13, he says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take my in my counsel and of sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? And then a few verses later, what he does is he consciously reminds himself of the character of God. He reminds himself of who God is and the promises that God has made to him. Verse 5, he says, but, here's the contrast, even though I feel, my emotions feel like you have forgotten me, Lord, I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. No matter what affliction you may ever face in your lifetime, which may provoke your heart to be tempted 
to think that God has forgotten you. You must do as the psalmist does, and that is you must consciously make a choice to go to the Lord and say, Lord, I will trust in your steadfast love, even if it doesn't make sense. Because I'm banking on your promises. That's what I'm basing my life on. That's what I'm basing my decisions on, is your word, your character, your faithfulness, your promises. The New Testament says it this way, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see how Paul is working from the greater to the lesser? He's saying whatever we are worried about, whatever we are struggling with, whatever we are facing, that is lesser than the greatest thing that God has already done for us that proves he is for us. If he has already in Christ given us all things, then everything else underneath that is lesser. If God, think about it, if God gave you his only begotten Son, in order to purchase your soul, to rescue it from eternal damnation, to give you eternal life, to give you abundant life, to adopt you into his family, to make you one of his forever children, is there anything Is there anything he will not do for you if it fits within his good character and his will for you? No. He's already done the greatest. Everything else is less. Remember your mercy, O Lord, your steadfast love. And we have to consciously Say, Lord, I remember. I'm going to choose to remember. Because remembrance builds our faith. Remembering what God has done in the past builds our faith for today. One of the phrases in in one of the songs we sang earlier uh, talks about raising my Ebenezer. And I remember the first time I I sang that hymn because I didn't grow up in a church that really sang biblical hymns and I thought what in the world does that mean maybe you're here this morning like raise my Ebenezer what comes from 1 Samuel chapter 7 and basically it means to raise up a stone of remembrance reminding ourselves of the ways that God has helped us they happened to raise a stone and gave it the name Ebenezer The Lord help us. The Lord has helped us. That's really what it's saying. And isn't that what David's doing in verse 6? Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. 
I'm remembering, Lord. I'm remembering your steadfast love. I'm remembering your mercy. Why is David talking this way in verses 6 and 7? Because of the guilt of his sin. When his sin burdened David, he appealed to the God of grace and mercy. And we must do the same. So notice, three responses. When burdened by your sin, you should, one, ask the Lord to remember his mercy. That is, to cleanse you according to his promise. We are asking God to remember his mercy, not because he has forgotten his mercy, but because we recognize that right now at this moment, we need streams of mercy flowing to us. God is merciful. It's part of his character. In fact, when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, he revealed his character to Moses with these words in Exodus 34. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So this is the Lord proclaiming to Moses who he is, who God is. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful. It's the first word. That's the first attribute. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God is filled with mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is, is God withholding judgment and condemnation from those who deserve it. You can think of of mercy and grace on two sides of a spectrum. Mercy is God withholding, holding back judgment and condemnation that we deserve. Grace is him pouring out favor that we could never, ever deserve. Now, why can God do this for us? Because on the cross, he did not hold back his judgment from his own son. While Jesus hung upon the cross, God did not have mercy on Jesus. He did not withhold judgment. He treated him as if he had committed every sin of every person who would ever come to receive eternal life. And he did that so that mercy could flow to us. He did not withhold judgment from his son so that he could withhold judgment from those who trust in Jesus, those who identify with Christ. And steadfast love, verse 6 This is God's loyal love. This is his kindness to the children of men. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. As David is praying to God, his heart is confessing his sinfulness, his need for mercy, his his need for the kindness of God in his steadfast love. 
when the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, is this how you respond? Or do you say, oh, oh, sorry, Lord, I made him another mistake. Or do you face it the way the Bible pictures us facing our sin? Like David in Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Have mercy according to your loyal love and kindness. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I really believe one of the biggest problems in our day is Christians who do not take sin seriously, their own sin. I see Christians getting all bent out of shape and filled with wrath toward the culture and all the evil things in the culture and all the ways that other people are sinning, government leaders all the way down, but I don't see the same kind of sober judgment on themselves when they look in the mirror. And I wonder to myself, do they really get the gospel? Do they really get mercy? Do they really understand steadfast love? Do we really understand how badly we have sinned against God? How massive is the chasm between our sin and his holiness that we would desperately cry out to him for a bridge, for a mediator, for someone to bridge the gap, to make us right with him. Do we look in the mirror and we see, yeah, pretty decent, at least really decent compared to the other people of the world. Can I just ask you to please stop comparing yourself to everyone else and compare yourself to Jesus Christ instead and say, Lord, how do you want to change me that I might be more like Christ? It is this mercy of God that saves us, this kindness of God. New Testament uh, Correlation here, Titus 3, 4 to 6. But when the goodness, listen to this, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. He saved us. (laughs) He took the initiative to save us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His mercy. Here's that word again by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. We who claim to be saved by the mercy of God can be in this world the most merciless people. That is disgraceful. That is a disgraceful testimony for the sake of the gospel. Those who have been saved by the mercy of God ought to be the most merciful people in the world. 
And at how far we fall short, how far I fall short, so often of being filled with mercy toward others. There's a second response when burdened by the guilt of your sin. Number two, ask the Lord to remember to forget your sins. That's an interesting statement. What that means is to not hold them against you. Look at verse 7. Remember not the sin of my youth or my transgressions. We all have sins of our youth that we would like to completely forget, right? And what David is doing here is he is reminding himself more than he is actually reminding God. God doesn't need reminders. He's reminding himself that God is so filled with mercy and steadfast love for those who belong to him that he does not hold our sins against us anymore. That's what it means that God chooses to forget our sins. It's not that he loses memory. It's not that God has some kind of short-term or long-term memory loss. It is that he makes a choice to forget our sins. Why? Because they've already been judged in Jesus. And that's why he chooses to forget them. We have to remember that God's mercy and his steadfast love are fully embodied in Jesus. So if you know him, if you are in Christ, then no one can ultimately be against you. Your sins have already been judged. Uh, Look at Psalm 79. Psalm 79, verse 5. Helps us understand a, a little bit more what this means, that God forgets our sin. Psalm 79. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name for they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. So he he sang, Lord, take out your wrath upon the wicked. But then he says, do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. When the Bible says that God does not remember our sins, what it means is he intentionally chooses to no longer hold them against us. That's what it means. That should then lead us to ask the question, how should that kind of 
intentional forgiveness that God gives to us in Christ, how should that affect the way we forgive one another? Because we are going to sin against each other. We are going to hurt each other. The question is, how then do we forgive one another? Well, as followers of Christ, God repeatedly commands us in the New Testament to forgive just as he forgives us in Christ. That's a really high calling. In his book, The Peacemaker, Ken Sandy says it this way. Through forgiveness, God tears down the walls that our sins have built And he opens the way for a renewed relationship with him. This is exactly what we can do when we forgive as the Lord forgives. We release the person who has wronged us from the penalty of being separated from us. We do not hold wrongs against others. Do not think about the wrongs. Do not punish others for their wrongs. Intentional choice. Then he goes on to describe four promises of forgiveness. So when someone confesses their sin to us and we say, I forgive you, this is what's included in that statement. Number one, I will not dwell on this incident. I will not keep hitting the replay button in my mind of what you said to me, what you did to me. I will not dwell on it. Two, I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. You always say that. You always do that. Don't you remember like 10 The last 10 times you did that? I've never said that, have you? (laughs) If we have said to someone, I forgive you, we have no business bringing it up and using it against them again. What we're doing is we're just adding another brick to the wall that God is trying to tear down for us. Thirdly, third promise, I will not talk to others about this incident. I'm not going to go outside of the necessary circle of knowledge. And when there's reconciling relationships, there's a circle of knowledge, but there's no need to go way out beyond that everyone in the world knows. And four, I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. And then Sandy goes on to say, by making and keeping these promises of biblical forgiveness, you tear down the walls that stand between you and your offender. You promise not to dwell on or brood over the problem or to punish by holding the person at a distance. You clear the way for your relationship to develop unhindered by the memories of past wrongs. 
And then he ends with this sentence. This is exactly what God does for us and it is what he calls us to do for others. God does not hold our sins against us. If we have confessed them to him, if we are trusting in the Lord Jesus, he has wiped the slate clean, he has thrown our offenses into the bottom of the ocean, and there they stay. And if they float to the surface in your mind and keep plaguing you, then you just have to keep pushing them down and reminding yourself, God already put this on the bottom of the ocean. I have no business pulling it up again. It is, it is absolutely breathtaking to think of the extent to which God has forgiven us in Christ. And then there's a third response. When burdened by your sin, you should ask the Lord to remember you according to his goodness, which is fully embodied in Christ. Verse 7, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Remember me based upon your goodness, Lord, keep treating me based upon your character and your commitments to me. See this again in verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. We never go to the Lord and say, for my sake, forgive me. (laughs) What is there in my sake to offer God? No, but it's according to your goodness, Lord. According to your mercy. According to your grace. According to your steadfast love. Let me encourage you this week to spend time in Psalm 103. Psalm 103. And make a list in your journal or your notebook or a margin of, in the margin of your Bible or something. But all of the ways that God demonstrates his goodness towards you. You will be amazed. So do you ever feel like David? Verses 6 and 7, do you ever feel unrighteous, unclean? If so, then what do you do? Do you just try to work harder (laughs) to overcome that sense of guilt? Or do you run back to the cross where true freedom is found? Do you rest in God's remembrance of you in Jesus? I love this statement from William MacDonald in the Believer's Bible Commentary. He says, what release there is in knowing that our sins are under the blood removed as far as the east is from the west, buried in the sea of God's forgetfulness, forgiven forever. (laughs) That's the mercy of God. Father, we thank you for your mercy, your steadfast love, your grace, none of which we could ever deserve.
we have offended you and your holiness and broken your law in more ways than we could ever count. And thank you, God, that because we're trusting in Jesus, you don't count those anymore. You don't count them against us anymore. But you wipe us clean, cleanse us. You choose not to remember our sins against us anymore. God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And Lord, now as we obey the Lord Jesus who gave us this ordinance of communion of the Lord's table, Lord, we choose to remember your promise to us in Christ. We choose to remember the past work of Jesus on the cross. We choose to remember his present work as our high priest right now. And we choose to remember his future coming as our Lord and Savior and coming King. Shift the focus of our hearts at this very moment, Lord, to the fullness of mercy that we find in Christ alone. In his name we pray, amen.